Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, today I'm speaking with Yuval Noah Harari. This was first recorded as a Zoom call for podcast subscribers, and there will be more of those coming, especially on topical subjects like the war in Ukraine. And that is the topic of today's conversation. Yuval is a historian who probably needs no introduction. He's been on the podcast several times before. He is the author of the best-selling books, Sapiens and Homo Deus, among others. And today we talk about the wider implications of Russia's war of conquest in Ukraine, especially as they pertain to the maintenance of global order. We discuss various forms of war. We talk about the problem of misinformation, international norms of behavior, the role of China, the civilizational importance of trust, globalization and deglobalization, existential risk, the role of India, Ukrainian leadership, the increased risk of nuclear war, regime change in Russia, and other topics. It's always great to speak with you all. He is a wealth of information and wisdom. So now, without further delay, I bring you Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval, thank you for doing this. Great to see you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, So wait, you're in Israel now, right? I'm right now in Tel Aviv, one of the most peaceful places in the world right now. (laughs) That's right, yeah. (laughs) Imagine the irony of that, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know our, our time is uh, limited, so I'll, you know, I'll just start running. People will get in here when they get in here. Uh, obviously, this is mainly a podcast. People are joining us to uh, listen while we get it made. But um, the, uh, so we titled this Zoom event, mm-hmm. Defending Western Civilization, uh, or I titled it that. And uh, I, you know, some back and forth between the two of us has led me to believe that you're, you don't think that's quite the right framing. And just mm. to tee that up, I mean, you're someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the power of, of narratives to shape human events. And even, even just titling a conversation like this is to partake in the, in the generation of, of narratives. What is the right framing here, do you think, for this, what we most need to talk about now? And, and how does that fit into a larger story of what's going on uh, at this moment in history? I think that the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine doesn't threaten Western civilization. It threatens the global order and uh, mm. its repercussions threaten uh, the ability of humankind as a whole to deal with the main challenges of the 21st century, including climate change, including the rise of disruptive technologies. So it's not at all about Western civilization. And also, you know, if, if we title this Defending Western Civilization, it kind of may give some people the impression that Russia is not part of Western civilization. It's an alien force, and it is a, mm. a part of Western civilization. I think it's, it's you know, you, yet again, we need to defend Western civilization from itself, not from an alien force. Yeah. But what's really at stake is, is not the West. What's really at stake is the global order. And it concerns people in Africa, it concerns people in India as much as it concerns people in the United States, for example. Right. So when you say the global order, to my ear, that sounds like the, the liberal 
global order or, or liberal mm-hmm. democracy versus autocracy. I guess the, my, my framing, the, the, the Western got smuggled in there mm. because I've been thinking perhaps inordinately about the role of China in all of this or the looming implications of oh. what happens in Ukraine for what happens with China and you know, what seems to be a, a new Cold War or a great power clash in the making. I, I don't know if we want to take the China piece early or, or save it for later, but how do you see it? No, I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, it's not, again, it's not just democracy. It's not just liberalism. Mm. It's also, you know, self-determination. It's also nationalism. It, it's the basic idea that you can't just invade a neighboring country and conquer it and wiping it off the map. It goes far, far deeper than, than, than just uh, liberal democracy. Over the last few generations, the, maybe the most basic rule established in the international arena, irrespective of the type of regimes you're talking about, is that you no longer do these things, which were very common, right. I mean, throughout history. This is kind of, you open one history book after the other, so you have the Assyrians or the Romans or the Mongols or the Russians invading neighboring countries and taking them over. This is how every empire in history was established. And over the last few generations, maybe the most basic rule of the new global order, and it, it, it's, again, it, it goes far beyond Western liberal democracies, is that you don't do that. You don't do that even if you are an Arab dictatorship or a military junta in South America. Uh, and I think this is part of the, of the shock that, you know, the, the shockwaves around the world that people realize that if Putin succeeds, if Putin is allowed to win, then this will become the new normal all over the world. Mm. Well, let's cycle on that point one more time, because I think many people look at this, uh, or certainly some people look at this, and wonder why we're deciding to care so much about this particular invasion, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, forget. obviously, it's a humanitarian crisis. But there have been many of those, some of which uh, we're in part or in whole culpable for, right? So we, I mean, we have invaded yeah. places. I think there's some obvious disanalogies there, but people look at this and say that there's something about, again, the story we're telling ourselves or are inclined to tell ourselves at this moment uh, that is different from the story we seized upon when uh, Russia invaded Crimea previously or mm-hmm. when... Um, you know, Syria fell apart and, you know, Obama's red line was crossed and we just decided to move on in the news cycle and talk about other things. Mm-hmm. Why is this a, a kind of 9-11 moment that puts us once again very close to the, the hinge of history? Partly because it's, it's now established as a pattern. When Crimea happened, then people said, well, they're, they're, this is a very unique situation and there are all kinds of excuses and it won't happen again. And it won't happen on a larger scale. And now you realize, no, this is the beginning of the pattern. If we don't stop it Mm. here, it will continue. It will also continue in other places around the world. Secondly, with regard to all the comparison, well, people didn't get so much excited or interested in what's happening in Yemen, what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Ethiopia. Part of it is because, again, it's a different kind of war. Part of the global order of the last few generations, for better or worse, was that civil wars are part of the game, but invading and conquering other countries and wiping them off the map is not. 
And this is now what is at stake. And there is a huge difference there. It's not that civil wars are okay. It's not that civil wars are people don't die in them or, or suffer in them. It's, you know, we had throughout history several kinds of wars. External invasions and conquests were always the most dangerous and the kind of backbone of military and diplomatic history. But there were always other kinds of wars, like civil wars. And what happened in the last few generations is that, first of all, the big wars between superpowers, and secondly, the external invasions and conquests, they kind of get out of the picture, out of the, you don't do that anymore. Whereas civil wars, they continue to be part of the system. And now we are seeing the return of something that we thought, well, we already got over that. Yes, we still have a way to go. We also need eventually to reach a situation when there are no civil wars. But now we are feeling that we are falling back. We are falling back to the most dangerous and most destructive kinds of wars. Uh, we are basically going back to the jungle, to the situation right. when at any moment the neighbors might invade and conquer us, which was the situation for most of history, but not in the last few decades. Mm. Yeah, I guess another part of the picture here is that this recent adventure or misadventure, as it seems to be turning out for Putin, seems to have been occasioned by his perception of American and European weakness, right? Mm -hmm. And he, he's done a fair amount on his side to engineer that weakness. I mean, there are probably a thousand points of salience here we could seize on. But I mean, one is just, you know, we have built the social media tools that allow bad actors like, you know, Putin's regime to use our own hyper-partisanship and divisiveness against us, right? So we have mm -hmm. the kind of the, the rampant hacking of our society. I'm not making the claim that any election has been, you know, quote, hacked with respect to voting machines, but there's no question that there's been an inflaming of public opinion from the outside, and we have built the tools to run that particular psychological experiment or psyops campaign ourselves. We've also collaborated in an increasing dependence on regimes that we can't actually trust. And this is some of this has been done with good intentions. I mean, there's this notion that trade and engagement would modify the political visions and aspirations of autocracies, right? So we mm -hmm. thought China would come around and Russia would come around and join the the well-behaved democracies of the world, as long as we traded enough and became aligned enough in our economic incentives. But that seems not to be happening. You know, we have you know Germany, in retrospect, quite insanely deciding to become energy dependent upon Russia and decommission its nuclear plants. And in the you know, current moment, that looks you know as masochistic as can be. We have you know the UK happily laundering the money of oligarchs endlessly, even as Putin poisons people with nerve agents on their soil, uh, you know, the Russian dissidents. Mm -hmm. It's just at a certain point, you know, all of this was, it should have been obvious this was leading in a dangerous direction. But now it finally seems, and this goes to the point of Putin's miscalculation, it finally seems that, that enough was enough. The spell has broken for all of us or most of us simultaneously. Yeah. And we're, we're now thinking of re-engineering a world where our ability to trust in the, you know, the political vision of our allies is 
paramount. And I'm, I'm wondering what you what you think of that and, and how much of this this sea change in our sense of globalization and global priorities is going to be durable and and what you know what should we be re-engineering here and rethinking here? How do you see that part mm-hmm. of the picture? I think it, it really was a very big shock because people, not only in the West, but people all over the world had the feeling that we are living in a more peaceful era, that we have managed to somehow crawl out of the jungle, put at least some distance. When I talk about a jungle, I talk about a situation when at any moment the neighboring country, empire, tribe, city-state might invade our territory and just occupy us, conquer us, take our lands, drive away our people, whatever. Which was the basic situation for all over the world for most of history. Whether it's ancient China, whether it's medieval Europe, whether it's uh, uh, the 19th century, this was the basic situation of of human beings. And peace in, in in those days for most of history meant simply the temporary absence of war. Now there is peace, but at any moment a war might start. And amazingly, humanity managed to really get out of this jungle and create not a completely peaceful world. You know, I come from the Middle East, I know perfectly well there are still wars in the world, but more peaceful than any previous era. And it's not some kind of hippie fantasy. Um, If you want to really see peace in action, don't look in poems, look in state budgets. You look at the budgets of the world in the last few years, and it's really amazing. Because the average military budget, out of total government budget, of countries all over the world, on average, is about 6-7%, something like that. In Europe, it was something like 3%. Compared to most of history, when the majority of the budget of every king and emperor and sultan went to finance the army and the navy and the fortresses, not healthcare and education. The world that we know, whether in the US or in Israel, but also in Brazil, also in Indonesia, it's built on these foundations of of the new peace. And Putin shattered that. Mm. Reminding us that the jungle is still nearby. A few decisions by a few individuals, and we are back there. And the danger, again, the danger is not just to Ukraine or then to Poland. Uh, You will see military budgets all over the world skyrocket, which means healthcare budgets and education budgets decline. You see less possibility for international cooperation on things like climate change on regulating AI. So this has repercussions everywhere. Now, the positive potential, it's still just, um, we're not sure, but the positive potential is, it's been such a shock that you saw Europe, and also to some extent the United States, uniting and reacting in a forceful way that would have sounded impossible just a month ago. You know, with Switzerland joining the EU sanctions, with Finland sending arms to Ukraine, with Germany doubling its defense budget overnight. And I think the biggest, Putin made two big miscalculations. One was about Ukraine. He thought that Ukraine is not really a nation, that the Ukrainians are actually Russians and they will welcome him. 
they will throw flowers on his tanks, and they are throwing Molotov cocktails. He was completely wrong about Ukraine. But he also made a big miscalculation about the West, about Europe and about the United States. I think if he waited a few more years, just done nothing, just wait a few more years, there is a good chance that Europe and the United States would have self-destructed due to their internal conflicts and culture war. And mm. he is now giving, with his own hands, he has united them, and he's giving them, them a chance to save themselves. I hope that the positive results of this war on, on, on the big scale would be, on the one hand, that we will see a green Manhattan project to stop depending on oil and gas, which is what's fueling the, the Russian military machine, but also an end to the culture war in the West. Yeah. Uh, because suddenly you realize there are far bigger issues, there are far bigger dangers in the world than who gets to enter which toilet. And if we can unite around a really big issue, then you know, the Western democracies don't need to fear anybody. If you look again at the numbers, they are still the most powerful. I mean, you know, Russia has a smaller economy than Italy. The Russian economy is about the same as Belgium and the Netherlands put together. As long, and forget even about the US, as long as Europe stands together, it has nothing to fear from Russia. Mm. Yeah, so let, let's linger on the culture war piece here because I do view that as, in large measure, what would seem to be provocative about our apparent weakness, you know, that, that Putin felt that we were so divided against ourselves. Mm -hmm that we would never cohere in the face of this kind of challenge. And I think he rightly thinks that, you know, after all of our failed wars, our appetite for conflict is somewhere near an all-time low. So the idea that we're actually going to get militarily involved, you know, in anything seemed remote, I'm yeah. sure. The culture war piece, I mean, it's hard to disentangle that from just the, the misinformation piece. I mean, we have tens of millions of people in America now, I mean, this cohort are disproportionately on, on the right who believe that the world is being run by a, a cult of child-raping cannibals, right? I mean, like, there's no limit to the craziness that passes for political engagement on the right at this moment. And, you know, not quite that far toward the fringe, but still pretty far toward it. We have people with platforms in the millions who are obviously parroting Russian propaganda in the middle of this war. And this piece needs to be disentangled from the you know, the quite odious claim that any criticism of you know, any possible policy here, like a, you know, enforcing a no-fly zone, is treasonous or doing, you know, carrying water for Putin. No, I mean, there, there are things that we need to debate with respect to how we react to this. But there are still obvious untruths being confidently spread by people who have, you know, bigger platforms than either of us do. And I'm, I'm hopeful, as you sound like you might be, that this challenge could get our heads straight and cut yeah. through the culture war. But an information ecosystem where it's becoming harder and harder to agree about facts. I mean, one thing I thought just the other day is that what would this current situation be like if deep fake technology was five years better than it yeah. is now, where really we were struggling to figure out whether any of the video we were watching of Zelensky or whether any of it was real, right? Like if that was where we were stuck, so anyway, just talk to me about the misinformation piece as mm. you see it. 
you know, partly we can't get everybody on board. You can never get everybody on board. You just need enough. You just need enough of the still sensible people on, on the right and also on, on, on the extreme left to, to have their aha moment that, okay, we, we, we need to face this challenge. It's bigger than all the other things we've been discussing. And especially if you talk about the American right, they have this Cold War inheritance of, you know, all, mm. the, all the Rambo movies and all the Rocky movies with the, with the bad Russians. And here you have it in real life. And it's almost irresistible. And I was kind of, you know, flipping between Fox News and CNN. And for the first time in a long time, they are actually showing the same thing. They are showing the same reality with a different take on it. Yeah. So in Fox News, we're really excited about all these people getting guns. And look, it's so important to have a gun in your home because when the Russians come, you can shoot yeah. at them. So, and you didn't see so much of that on CNN. But still, they are on the same page, roughly. They are with the same, on, on the same reality. And um, you'll, you'll never get everybody there, but you don't need everybody. It's never the case in history that you have everybody. Mm. And I, I'm less, you know, also I'm, I'm less familiar with the specific situation in the US, but you see also what's happening in Europe, that the, the kind of closing of, 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 the, of the ranks very quickly and, and, and quite surprisingly. And, you know, even figures like Viktor Orban saying that he will not oppose, he will not prevent sanctions against Russia and accepting waves of refugees uh, after all his talk against refugees, against the European Union, against Brussels, he's suddenly behaving in, in a different way. Maybe because there is elections coming in Hungary, I'm, I'm not sure. But you see something changing. I, don't, I can't predict the future whether it will last. This, is, this could be a very long war. And people need, you know, it's not just the first two or three weeks. We need to see what happens in a month, yeah. in two months. And even after the war is over, at some, some stage, a big question will be how to win the peace. No matter how the war ends, it's crucial, again, especially for Europe, to some extent also to the US, but Europe is the main play, player here, to win the peace. Europe has the economic resources to turn Ukraine, whatever the peace treaty is, Europe has the power to turn Ukraine into a prosperous democracy by making enough investments and sending enough help in various forms. You know, not just rebuild roads and bridges and hospitals and schools, building research centers, moving factories. And if they make this investment and turn Ukraine into a prosperous country, this will obviously not just benefit Ukraine enormously, it will be the biggest defense for Europe and also the biggest challenge for the Putin regime to explain to the, uh, you know, the, the, the poor citizens of Russia how come the Ukrainians can do it and you don't see the same thing in Russia. You know, Russia is a much, much wealthier country than you, it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world in terms of natural resources. But the citizens are poor. They receive very low-level government services, healthcare, education, welfare. And that's, you know, one, maybe the biggest question that Russian citizens should ask their government, why don't we get the same level of healthcare as they get in Finland or as they get in Canada? I, and the answer, of course, is because the money went for tanks. 
Uh, we we, we right. mentioned earlier that the Russian economy is smaller than the Italian economy. So how come Putin has this military machine? Because the military budget of Russia in percentage out of government budget is not 3%, like in the EU. It's not 6%, like the, uh, the world average. Nobody knows exactly how much it is because it's secret. The estimates, the lowest estimates are around 11%. The highest estimates, they reach 20, 30, 35%. Truth is probably somewhere in between. And mm. again, th th that's the, the, the key question for Russia, but also the key question for, for European citizens and for people all over the world. Which kind of country do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a country like Russia, which spends 10, 20% of its government budget on the military or not? And I think that even people on the right know the answer to this question. No, we don't want to live in this kind of country. But it seems to me that if we're going to seize the right lesson from this moment and unite the liberal world order against all of the remaining autocracies, I mean, that's one lesson we might seize from it. And one, one of those being China, right? Then we're talking about acknowledging that we're losing this peace dividend and we're thinking it's a good thing that Germany now is willing to spend more on mm. its own defense, yeah. right? So, I mean, what, what is the normative that is desirable move now in light of what is happening with respect to things like military budgets? Don't, don't unite the world against autocracies. Unite the world against aggression. Uh, we need mm. some autocracies on, on the right side. Uh, it would be difficult. I mean, if you divide the world into autocracies and democracies, you're making it much, much more difficult. There are many autocracies that are not necessarily in favor of the kind of aggression. That, and, and again, this is why, what we talked about earlier, why is this so different from other wars? And why does this create the, 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 this kind of, of, of reaction? Because it's not about the internal regime of a country. It's about the behavior, the norms of behavior in the international arena. When you look at the right. past few decades, you see that also many, if not most, of the autocracies in the world, and again, there are many terrible things to say about them, of course, but at least most of them also kept this key norm of the international community that you just don't invade a neighboring country and conquer it. And, you know, you look at China, since 1979 and the Chinese incursion, invasion into Vietnam, China has not engaged in any external invasion. And we shouldn't kind of rush to, 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 to uh, you know, push the Chinese into, together with the Russians into one camp. If the Chinese choose at this critical moment to join the Russians and support them, that's terrible news. And, and if it happens, the world will have to deal with it. But it still didn't happen. Mm. And ideally, we should isolate the Putin regime, not push countries to, to join it. Now, I have no kind of... Uh, China is not going to actively take actions against Russia, but it's also very careful so far about supporting it. The, the, the best we can right. hope from the Chinese is to stay on the fence, to stay neutral. And we shouldn't do anything to push them towards the Russians. The same is true of other countries like Iran, like Venezuela. Uh, if the US 
can diplomatically uh, work with these countries so they don't join a bloc with Russia, that, that's, that, that's a plus. Right. What's your view of the, the degree to which we, the, the, the US and uh, the EU or the NATO countries should be engaged on the ground in, or in the skies over mm. Ukraine? I mean, so what, what's, your, what's your position on enforcing a no-fly zone, for instance? That, 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 that's ab above my, my pay grade. <laughs> I, I, okay. I'm not a military expert. I don't understand right. the kind of, of, of military issues involved. I also don't understand the, the complicated political issues involved with NATO and, and Europe and so forth. I, I don't know. I, I don't have a strong opinion on that. Do you have thoughts about what this does to the logic of, of nuclear proliferation? I mean, it seems to me one lesson many countries might draw from this moment is that if you have nukes, no one invades you. And if you don't have nukes, uh, you might be invaded at any moment. That's part, that's part of the danger. Again, the, the norm yeah. that you, you don't invade and conquer countries was very important for a number of reasons. One of them is, again, military budgets, but the other is the uh, non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. Because you had the kind of feeling that even if I don't have nuclear weapons, I'm still protected against the worst, and not against all violence, but against the worst form of violence which is to just being wiped off, off the map by, by, by some crazy neighbor. And if this norm no longer, uh, is no longer valid, then we are very likely to see the proliferation of nuclear weapons, not just in the usual suspects, you know, like Iran, but, you know, think about Germany. If I'm now a German and I'm looking around, then I say to myself, okay, uh, we need nukes, to protect ourselves and also to protect Eastern Europe. Now, where, who, who controls these nukes? In NATO, there are three countries that control the nukes. It's the US, it's France, and it's Britain. Now, let's imagine a scenario that in 2024, Trump is again US president. Let's say that it's a bit extreme, but let's say that Le Pen, still possible, wins the coming elections in France, and Britain goes its Brexit way. Can Germany really trust Trump, Le Pen, and the Brexiters to risk mm. nuclear annihilation for the sake of Germany or for the sake of Poland? Maybe not. If so, the logical conclusion could be Germany needs its own nukes. And the same yeah. kind of thinking can be happening in Japan, can be happening in South Korea, can be happening in more and more places which is extremely dangerous because the more fingers you have on these red buttons, chances grow that somewhere, some, some, sometime, somebody would press the button uh, with terrible consequences for, for the whole of humankind. So again, nuclear weapons play, you know, a very double role here in this war. On the one hand, they prevent, for, for better or worse, I'm not sure, they prevent yeah, the yeah. entry of NATO into this conflict. I mean, if Russia had no nuclear weapons, I think it was a very high chance that either NATO yeah. or at least some members of NATO like Poland would have intervened. On the other hand, if Putin is allowed to win, then the lesson for many countries around the world, including in Europe, as we just discussed, would be we need our own nukes. Right, right. Well, what, what do you see about the forces of globalization and, and deglobalization now with respect to, I mean, this, this was not only a story of, 
what Russia invading Ukraine did to our minds, but this is obviously what COVID did as well. When we, mm-hmm. we noticed that our supply chain was not no longer reliable when everyone was faced with the same emergency. Again, this is part of a peace dividend unraveling for us because obviously it's more expensive if you need to vertically integrate much of what you care about economically. Where do you see that going? And um, is that something we should be resisting? It, it, it seems like the, the normative lesson you would want to draw here is that while some of this may be necessary, I mean, why it may be necessary for Germany to think about doubling its or tripling its military budget now, and that seems appropriate, and it's also appropriate for them not to be dependent upon Russia for natural gas, mm-hmm. several moves ahead, all of this begins to look like a more divided world, a less, a world with just that's predicated far more fundamentally, even explicitly on a loss of trust. Yeah. Right. And trust is a good thing. Trust is something we want, we want to maximize. And yet it's unraveling here geopolitically. And again, this, this also links it back to the, the internal divisions of, of the culture war you were discussing, because perhaps the most salient variable, you know, right and left politically here has been a total breakdown in trust of institutions. So, you know, the, the, mm. the far left and the far right agree about one thing, that you can't trust the mainstream media, you can't trust mainstream science, you can't trust corporations, certainly. And there's this epidemic of, of contrarianism yeah. that is being leveraged, which is being sold psychologically to people as a kind of skepticism. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of like, do your own research, right? Where, but it's actually not skepticism. It's, it's skepticism about the mainstream narrative always mm-hmm. and everywhere. Uh, you have people who will deride the New York Times as fake news, and, you'll, and they assume that a corporation like Pfizer will always lie to them about their data, and yet they will trust something they, they get on a Substack newsletter about alternative medicine without blinking. So it's not skepticism proper. It's quite uh, asymmetrical. Mm-hmm. But I got to think that civilizationally, the larger project here is for us to find some pathway back to hmm. trust, you know, both w- within and outside of our respective countries. Without trust, both on a national level and on the international level, civilization collapses. Trust is the glue that holds everything together. And trust mm-hmm. in institutions. I mean, not trust in the 100 people you know personally. You can't build a nation of 300 million people or a, a world of almost 8 billion people if you only trust the 100 people you know personally. How do you trust mm. people you don't know personally? This is where institutions come into the picture. And again, without institutions, there, there is no civilization. It's, it's, it's very, very clear. If people lose all trust in, civil, in, in civilization, that, in, in institutions, that's the end of, of, of civilization. Can you uh, unpack that a little bit? Yuval, uh, just, just linger on that point because it... Yeah. You know, everything, the, the sewage system, I mean, the sewage system is an institution. You need some people who are paid by the government to build the sewage, to, 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 to make sure that it doesn't overflow, that uh, the, all, I mean, it's an, and you don't know these people. How do you know that they are not spying on you from, from the sewage? How do you know that there, are, there isn't, that they're not building an army in the sewage system to take over the world? You don't. You trust the, the good people who are responsible to maintain, to build and maintain our sewage systems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, You're the, assuming the, that my hundred friends are not running the sewage system for me. It's impossible. I mean, you, yeah. you need many, more than a hundred people to, to, to build and run the sewage system. 
and uh, again, I mean, all the, all the people who kind of read the, the fake news on social media, for some reason, they do trust their mobile devices. Like, the, the question that keeps bothering me, I mean, you're so skeptical about the vaccines. But somehow, you trust the mobile phone companies that these devices are not causing brain cancer, are not causing mm -hmm. sterilization. Why? Why is it that uh, the, the, the mistrust is directed at a particular institution and not at the mobile phone companies, for instance? So it's, it's, it's always selective. But I think that this takes us on, on, a, on, on a different rabbit hole. I mean, going back to, to, to the war and to the distrust on the global level, part of the issue is if, if this war leads to less international trust, then the economic consequences will be horrendous because it would mm. mean, again, not just a rise in military budgets at the expense of everything else, it would also mean the unraveling of trade networks. Everybody has to produce everything themselves with dire consequences. It also means, I mean, even if somehow you can deglobalize the economy, let's say that you can do it at an enormous cost, but let's say you do it, you cannot deglobalize the climate and you cannot yeah. really deglobalize technology. So you're still left with how to deal with climate change and ecological collapse without global cooperation and how to regulate the disruptive new technologies mm. like artificial intelligence if you don't trust any other country. Obviously, you can't do it. So if we lose international trust, it means we can't regulate any of these technologies. You know, if you, right. even you think about genetic engineering, then every country will be forced to kind of go along the most dangerous path because the logic would be we don't want to do it. We don't want to start engineering babies and we don't want to produce killer robots, but we have to do it because there are the other countries doing it and we cannot be left behind. Mm. And this is part of the yeah, price to be paid. Uh, again, it's not inevitable. I mean, it's, it can still be stopped. If Putin loses and everybody sees that he failed, then the result could be actually a strengthening of the international norms, of the international system, mm. and a greater degree of trust. So not all is lost. I mean, so much depends on the outcome of, of this war. But it, it can still have potentially positive outcome if we don't allow Putin to win. Mm. Yeah, I, just, I want to underline the point you just made uh, and make it even more generic. It seems to be, in principle, true that we can't deglobalize existential risk. I mean, any source of existential risk for us as a species is a problem that we have to converge on, the, you know, the, the solution to which we have to converge on. I mean, it, it's a massive coordination problem to regulate any of the, of the risks you just mentioned, whether it's AI or genetic engineering or um, you know, our response to pandemics, right? We can't have just a, merely a, a national response to a global pandemic mm -hmm. you know, in the end. That's important to keep in view. And I think this brings us to the question that you raised at the very beginning of China, that what's 
China is going to, be, to do about it to, to, because to a large extent, the, the key is in Beijing. The Chinese, again, f uh, since 1979, they have not engaged in any direct foreign military adventure. Their foreign mm. policy has been consistently to resist, to um, condemn these kinds of, of, of aggressive international moves, especially, of course, when they come from the US, but also more generally speaking. And uh, the Chinese are still sitting on the fence. And without Chinese support, Russia cannot sustain this, law for, this war for long. And the Chinese have a lot to lose from uh, a situation when international cooperation breaks down, when international trade breaks down, and the world divides into hostile camps. In, in immediate terms, they are, you know, the biggest exporter in the world. So a situation in which global trade shrinks and countries become far more self-reliant, it will be a huge, huge blow to the, to the Chinese economy. Yeah. And also, if you think in the most, you know, cold, calculated power politics, if right now there is the Third World War between the US-European-led coalition and the China-Russian alliance, there isn't probably a single major country which would side with China. From, from this, you know, very cold perspective, Putin has just right. moved too quickly. I mean, the most important example is India. Because India, China, and Russia are in a triangle. India has been traditionally very close to Russia, good friends. Russia is the main supplier of weapons to India. They buy some from US, from Israel, but it's mainly coming from Russia. The entire logic of, of the Indian foreign policy and military policy in this respect is the assumption that if there is a war between China and India, which is what the, the biggest danger to, to India, Russia mm. would at the very least stay neutral and continue to supply weapons to India. If now China comes to Russia's help, one of the first results, at least logically, is that you know, Russia becomes basically a Chinese client and India can no longer rely on Russia. So uh, India has to move to the Western camp. Mm. If you look at the other major powers, then of course all the major powers in East Asia, Japan, South Korea, it's obvious they'll go with the West, Australia would go with the West, Brazil and Latin America would go with the West, maybe Iran and a few African countries, if they have to choose, would choose to join the, the, the Russia-China uh, 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 camp. So at this moment in history, if somebody is thinking in terms of, you know, a new Cold War or a new World War, this is not the right moment for mm. China and Russia to raise the flag, who is joining us? They, mm. again, maybe he was too impatient, Putin. In five years, in 10 years, it could have been a completely different situation, both because the West could have self-destructed by then, and because the, pos the global position would have changed. But at the present moment... Just imagine having done it during a second Trump term with Trump deciding to pull out of NATO. Yeah. That would have been a very different moment. Yeah. Completely different. Yeah.
Well, this is fascinating, Yuval. Actually, I want to open it to questions earlier than expected, just because you're, you're such a wealth of perspective here. So, okay, Stacy, do you have any questions that have risen to the top of the queue? Yes, I will start. I will start with this one. You've talked about quote, uniting aggression, uniting against aggression. Who do you see taking the lead on that? It's unclear which leaders, countries, and or groups have the credibility and influence to drive that change. Mm -hmm. I, I, I talked about uniting against aggression to make, to make it clear that we are not talking about uniting against autocracy, that we are not talking right. about uniting against a particular ideology, a particular type of regime because then it, it really shrinks the circle of, of potential allies. And also because uh, a lot of autocracies are also worried about a return to the jungle, a return to a situation when the neighbors, I mean, this is not the, the 1920s and 1930s. You also see that a lot of autocrats, yes, what they are doing at home may be terrible, but they are not engaged in the kind of foreign military adventures which characterized autocrats in, in, in bygone eras. Who would unite? I mean, who would lead it? At present, of course, we're talking about the war in Ukraine, leadership would come from Europe and the United States. What would be required from other countries is, is, is mostly you know, to cooperate with the sanctions. Nobody talking about sending military forces or, or, or armies. But also, if we talk about leadership, we need to say something about the leadership of Ukraine itself and the leadership of Zelensky. It's feel, in the last few weeks, it's, it, it felt like, you know, Kyiv is like now like this kind of power station that sends electrical shockwaves all over the world, certainly all over the Western world, and kind of galvanizing people and governments and politicians in the Western world to do things that they wouldn't have dreamt of doing a, a month or yeah. two ago. And I think that really the, 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 the first few days of, of the war were in this sense a very important psychological turning point that everybody was just watching what will happen. Putin himself apparently was completely convinced that this will be over in 24 or 48 hours. He was really convinced yeah, amazing. in his own yeah. life. And this is what happens to dictators. They begin to believe their own lies because nobody is contradicting them. That Ukraine really, that the Ukrainians are really Russians, they really want to unite with Russia, and that it's only a small gang of Nazis at the top that are preventing it. And mm -hmm. the moment he invades, Zelensky will uh, flee the country, and the Ukrainian army will lay down the, the arms, and the population will throw flowers on the Russian tanks. And it, of course, it, it's completely opposite of what happened. Zelensky stayed in Kiev, and the Ukrainian army is fighting like lions, and the Ukrainian population is throwing Molotov cocktails on the tanks. But it wasn't just Putin who was kind of waiting to see what happens. People all over the world, and certainly people in Europe, they didn't know. Maybe it will be a repeat of 2014 in the invasion of Crimea, when there was no real opposition to the Russian invasion. And also people thought maybe it would be some kind of futuristic cyber war, that within 24 hours, yeah. the Russians will do some cyber magic and will somehow, I don't know, they emerge from, from, from the screens and land in helicopters and, and shock the world with how sophisticated and, and how advanced their the military is. 
And within a few days, it turned out that all these expectations were completely wrong. Not only the Ukrainians are really fighting like lions, but the Russian army is underperforming all the expectations. And we didn't get this futuristic cyber war. We got something, you know, people throwing Molotov cocktails on tanks. And watching this kind of display of, you know, the most traditional kind of patriotism, a people fighting for its liberty against external invasion, this galvanized people mm. all over the world seeing it. And it goes back to the issue of the culture war. I think maybe the most important message that the Ukrainians are now giving us is that the left and the right can unite around the common ideal of freedom. The Ukrainians are fighting both for, for their national freedom as a nation and mm. also for the political freedom, for the democracy, for the, the liberal democracy that they have established. And I, again, I, I don't know what will happen, but I hope that this will remind people in, in, in the US, people in, in France, in Britain, all over, that nationalism and liberalism are not historical enemies. They are historical mm. friends. They are basically born together, again, sharing this ideal of freedom, that to have a functioning democracy, you need national sentiment. You need to feel a special bond with the other people in your country. And also reminding people on the right that nationalism is not about hating foreigners. It's not about hating minorities. It's about taking care of your compatriots, including things mm. like paying your taxes so that people will get good healthcare and education because you care about them. That, that's the essence of, of nationalism. And if you understand this correctly, I think, I hope this is something that the, at least most parts or some enough parts of the left and the right can un unite around in order to end the culture war and present a common front against the enemy of both national self-determination and liberal democracy. Mm. Yeah, that's a very interesting point upon which you've actually changed my thinking. You know, prior to speaking to you, nationalism for me has always been a, a pejorative term, more or less synonymous with political tribalism at mm. the nation state level that we need to outgrow. And the only good term in that space is something like patriotism. But I, I, it, it's the but same, I now just, you know. yeah, but I take your point. I actually take your point that, that we need some, there is a way in which those of us who, who are cosmopolitan can tip over into a um, political and even ethical blindness with respect to the importance of citizenship, mm. right? And really taking, really just owning one's connection to the local community in political terms. And there is a, um, this, this does come back to trust and, and the valuing of institutions in the end that it has eroded for so many people left and right. Mm -hmm. So uh, Stacey, next question. Speaking of trust, you both seem to agree that our survival depends on trust. Given that the biggest technological development in recent history is blockchain technology, which stands to reduce the need for trust in cooperation, do you think it might make more sense to rebuild institutions using tools which require less trust than to rebuild trust itself? I'm not sure that blockchain really eliminates the need for trust. We often see in history that a new technology emerges, which seems to kind of bypass trust 
but then you discover in all kinds of ways that there is, you still need the human institutions in the loop. And to take maybe a very ancient example, you know, when, when you look at the revolution of writing, which was a revolution of information technology, so a, a big problem in religions in the ancient world was how to trust humans, how to trust the prophets, mm. the shamans, the priests, that they are not distorting the word of, of God. And then somebody came up with this amazing new technology, writing. We can just have a book. And if you have in a book the words of God, no humans can ever again distort them. And you had this basically blockchain idea with regard to texts like the Bible, that once we, once, we just need once to establish consensus on the word of God, and then we'll have lots and lots of copies of that. And if anybody tries to change even one letter in the word of God, we can compare it with the other copies and we'll see that they are wrong. They are trying to deceive us. And they created this original blockchain. But very quickly they discovered that somebody needs to interpret the text. It doesn't interpret itself. So they had to rebuild human institutions based on trust. You had the rabbis interpreting the Bible. And again, they tried to take humans out of the loop. They said, okay, okay, okay. Now that we have the, 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 the interpretation of the Bible, we'll create the Mishnah and the Talmud. And this will be, the con there is a consensus. This is the next block in the chain. Now, no, no, no more need of any of these fallible humans trying to interpret the holy text. We have the interpretation. And of mm. course it didn't work. They again had to, to, to establish human institutions to interpret the Mishnah and the Talmud. And so forth and so on. So, and I think it also is it's likely to happen with the new blockchains that you always have to go back to the human institutions that set them up, that interpret them, that uh, monitor them. You know, in, in the current war, if you talk about the financial system, it suddenly becomes a very good thing that by human action, you yeah. can block Putin's access to the hundreds of billions of dollars that he has accumulated in preparation for the war. Mm. I guess that, you know, Bitcoin fans look at it in horror. Hey, he has these hundreds of billions of dollars and he can't access them. That's not fair. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. you look at it and you say, hey, it's, actually, it's a good thing that something like this can be done in an emergency, which you couldn't do, presumably, uh, with Bitcoin. The whole financial history of the world is about moving from currencies of distrust to currencies of trust. If you look at grain, which was the original currency in ancient Mesopotamia, it requires very little trust. You can eat it. Mm. So you don't need to trust anybody that it's valuable. Right. As you move to gold and paper and then digital currency, there is more and more trust. Blockchain is an attempt to go back, that we don't trust people. We want to trust technology instead. As a historian, I, I'm skeptical of this attempt to take humans out of the loop and put all our trust in technology instead. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, Stacy. Are we closer to nuclear war now than we've ever been since World War II? Ah, in World War II, we didn't have nuclear weapons until, you know, until August or July 1945. Hmm. Uh, we were very close. Maybe, maybe take it to the... Uh... Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, in 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis is usually kind of the, the, 
I don't know if we are closer or not than the Cuban Missile Crisis or the crisis in the, in the early 1980s, but we are certainly closer than two months ago or two years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, it, it was shocking to see how quickly, you know, within two or three days from the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you had people on television explaining viewer, to viewers the capabilities of nuclear weapons. Mm. And you had Putin threatening in one way or the other the use of nuclear weapons. You know, it's, it's like Freud. It's like the, the return of the repressed. That uh, yeah. we thought, hey, nuclear weapons, this is from Dr. Strangelove and the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was in the 1960s. But no, it's, 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 it's still here. You know, you just scratch the surface. Two, three days of war and tsh, nuclear weapons resurface. Mm. And actually, maybe it's a good thing that uh, people are reminded of the, of the terrible potential, which is, which, is still, which is growing all the time, that the destructiveness of the weapons just keeps increasing. And cyber warfare makes it even more dangerous, because at least in the Cuban Missile Crisis, you had this kind of, um, of, of, of chess game that everybody knew the moves that on, 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 of the game, so everybody knew it was mutually assured destruction. Now with cyber, there is a very dangerous element of uh, something which is not known, that you don't know. Maybe if you press the button, nothing happens because the other side hacked you and the missiles won't fire. Mm. Maybe you can do that to the other side. And if you can do that to the other side, you can win a nuclear war because the other side will not be able to retaliate. So this is a danger to the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, which is very bad news, because it increases the likelihood of, of, a, of a nuclear exchange, of a nuclear war. Mm. So yes, I think we are closer to nuclear war than we were at any point, certainly, since the end of the, of the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, one of the scariest variables there is that it, it raises the likelihood of accidental nuclear war, because uh, when you just look at, the, at how is in, in peacetime, if there's some radar anomaly or some computer glitch hmm. that gets read initially as incoming ICBMs, well, it would make no sense in, in that context. In the current hmm. context, it would make all too much sense. I mean, so Putin is, you know, any, any artifact that suggests we've launched a first strike on Russia is very likely to be interpreted in the current context as an actual first strike, and it's going to be very hard to disabuse him of um, that impression. Yeah, and, and, and if some hackers just, you know, they don't need to hack the missiles. If they just hack yeah. the radio system and present yeah, exactly. the appearance of a first strike, this could cause a nuclear annihilation. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you raised a point about the, the logic, the really infernal logic of mutually assured destruction, it rests on a psychologically uh, questionable, uh, if not implausible, thesis, which is upon witnessing that a nuclear first strike has been launched at us, let's say, you know, the United States, you know, Joe Biden uh, is awakened to the news that Russia has just annihilated us by launching everything in our direction. Mm -hmm. The idea then is that Biden is going to decide in his last minutes of life to be the second greatest mass murderer in human history mm -hmm. by eradicating Russia. 
right? Yeah. And that's that really is the the deal we have made, you know, if not explicitly, implicitly with one another, that that is why a first strike is untenable. That is the thing that makes a first strike untenable, because we will have 30 minutes mm -hmm. in which to respond, and we will decide to commit genocide ourselves. I mean, one, it seems like a, a frame of mind we want to outgrow, but to outgrow it unilaterally, uh, I mean, one, it, it, there's a, I think there's an open question as to whether anyone you know, any non-psychopath is actually in that frame of mind ever. I mean, whether there is a U.S. president who would decide mm. to just annihilate uh, Russia or, you know, previously the Soviet Union just because that was the deal. And there's only 30 minutes in which to think about it. But if we just decided, listen, we're never going to do that, mm. right? We're never going to decide to kill 140 million people because we we're, we see the, these uh, blips on our computer monitors, you know, for 29 minutes. That is tantamount to disarming unilaterally, and that itself could prove provocative by the same logic you just sketched mm -hmm. out. I mean, that is essentially saying, yes, you can win a nuclear exchange with us because we're not going to fire back. How do we just game theoretically, how do we mm -hmm. climb out of this perverse basin of attraction? I, I think what kind of gives some protection here is that nobody would like to take the gamble that you don't know for sure, even, I mean, you don't know for sure if Biden wouldn't do it. Uh, would you gamble the existence of yourself, your family, your entire nation on the fact that he won't? That's too big a gamble. So right. it's, uh, as long so, as- So in your not, mind, yeah? would it, be, it would be a bad thing for any uh, US president, certainly in the near term, to say, listen, it's not a game that I'm willing to play. We're not going to commit gen you know, return genocide just because we can. I, I think with the, countries with, with the logic of mutually assured destruction. Countries generally kind of keep the fog of war around mm. their, 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 their thinking on nuclear war on, on purpose. That you need to keep the Although other we haven't side ju guessing. Just to press that point, we haven't done that with respect to things like not going into Ukraine. I mean, Biden has mm -hmm. been absolutely transparent. He says, under no circumstances are we going to fight a ground war in Ukraine. And that may be, you know, strategically just a stupid move because why shouldn't Putin be guessing about what we might do every because day you don't, he you prosecutes don't want, this war? Because you don't want to keep Zelensky guessing either. You don't want to mislead the Ukrainians mm. that they would have this calculation, well, NATO is going to help us, so let's do this or let's do that. You need to be very clear in this case with your friends, right. what are the limits of, of your commitment? Uh, right. I think that, that that's the main issue and it's very, very important. Because if you create a situation when the Ukrainians are led to believe that you will go in to help them, and also Western public opinion may be under the impression that you might go, go in to help them, and then something terrible happens, then you are under immense pressure to go in, mm. or you, uh, you, you completely lose face. Right. So um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on these kinds of things, so I'm not sure what was the best thing to do, but I think that the main issue was not to prevent Putin from guessing, it's it's about providing the Ukrainians and public opinion in the West Interesting. with with clear signals. And again, th th there are a lot of gray areas. I mean, NATO members can join the war 
as individual countries and not as NATO. The same way that Turkey sent mm. forces into Syria, we could see Poland sending Polish forces into Ukraine as Poland, not as, as NATO. You could see many other mm. kinds of, you know, there's always a question of what kind of weapons you send in. There is a question whether you, where you send your fleet, whether you start recruiting, like uh, the, the, the army. There are a lot of things you can do short of an all-out entry of NATO forces in, into Ukraine. Uh, so there is a lot of things that still Putin needs to be, need to be guessing about. Mm. Well, I know we're getting up against your, your heart out here, Yuval. Uh, I have Let's a few take more one minutes. more question. Yeah, I have a few more, okay. because I tend to give these long answers. So maybe one, yeah, one or two more great. questions. Yeah, that's what we want. So Stacey, let's get one more question. Regime change, quote unquote, has become something of a frowned upon idea in recent mm. years, yet Putin seems to individually hold significant power and pose unique dangers. Does the end game here, whether it comes in weeks, months or years, need to involve Putin's removal from power? Or is there a way forward where he maintains his position as the leader of Russia? Yeah, I'll just add to that, Yuval. Yeah. Let me just let me just add a piece to that. I mean, this is what worries me just about the the logic of how the conflict unfolds. It, many people are are recognizing this and, and talking about building some kind of off ramp or some kind of bridge for Putin. Because if losing the war in, in Ukraine or even stopping the war in Ukraine becomes synonymous with regime change, mm -hmm. that sounds like it's synonymous with him at minimum winding up in prison mm. or at least. Uh, having a, a style of life that is, that is currently unrecognizable. Uh, and even more likely, it, it might be synonymous with him being killed at the end of this whole process. So mm -hmm. if you're going to explicitly put his back against the wall personally, uh, it becomes more and more rational for him to uh, you know, essentially play a game of chicken with the rest of the world here. Uh, absolutely. So yeah. don't, don't do that. I mean, we should decouple you know, the end of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine from regime sh change in Russia. The, the, the regime change in, in Russia is ultimately up to the Russian people. Leave it to them. Uh, it's, it's, mm. very, it's completely counterproductive and very dangerous to in any way tie the end of the current war to a regime change in Russia. And one of the things quite unique about this war is that it's a relatively rare case in history when it's really a war of just one person. It's been said about many wars, but it's usually not true. Mm. Most wars are wars between nations, between peoples, between countries, between ideologies. Not this one. This is really a very rare case in history when it's really just Putin's war. It's the, not the war of the Russian people or of the Russian nation or of some ideology. It's not that the Russian people wanted it. You know, until the very last moment, uh, they weren't even told that there is going to be a war. And part of this fantasy that he will just walk in, it will be over in 24 hours, and everybody will just accept a fait accompli. So the Russian people were not prepared for it. At this stage, it is still the war of just one person. He can stop it at any moment. The danger is that if this continues, it will become a much uglier and deeper conflict. Uh, every day this war continues, it sows seeds of hatred between Ukrainians yeah. and Russians. And the big danger is that if this doesn't stop 
soon enough, even if Putin is no longer there, the legacy of hatred could continue for years and generations. And again, it's a very rare case in history when a single person can create so much hatred. Yeah. So I hope that, you know, he comes to senses and he, he re I mean, that his dream of reestablishing the Russian Empire, it should be clear it's not going to happen. Because for that, you need, the, you, even if you defeat the Ukrainians militarily, it won't be enough. To what extent and, and how soon he will come to terms with, with this reality, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't guess. But really, the, the big fear, if this, if this continue, it will shift from the war of just one person to very deep hatred between people between mm. nations. Mm. Well, Yuval, we've done several podcasts at this point, and I keep promising we will one day talk about meditation and the nature <laughs> of mind and you know, all of the topics that are truly nearest and dearest to, to both of us. Mm. But it seems that history keeps intervening. Yeah. We, need a, we need a real peace dividend so that we can talk about these uh, esoteric and existential concerns. Ah, I, but, I, think, um, I think that it's an important point, what you just said. But, you, you know, again, again, going back to the jungle, means so many things for people all over the world. It's, it's the budgets, mm. and uh, it's climate change, and it's also, also this, that, that increasingly this, will, this is what will be on people's mind. War, and tanks, and fear of invasion, and this doesn't leave room for other things. Mm. So again, going back to, to the very beginning of, of our discussion, this is why I think what is at stake is the global order, both in the sense of the international orders of relations between countries, but also really order and chaos in the individual lives of each and every one of us. Uh, mm. if, if, if this goes on, and especially if, if Putin is allow, allowed to win, so we will see much more fear and much more hatred, really in the individual lives of, of each and every, every one of us. It will be kind of the new norm, the new norm of leadership, the new norm of, of relations between people. Uh, so it's, it's in the interest of everyone across the world, in any country that you live, to do your best to stop this thing as soon as possible. Mm. Well, we will uh, continue talking about it, Yuval, and um, I look forward to the time where we have nothing more pressing to talk about <laughs> than the nature of mind. I so hope so. Let's too. do our best to engineer that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again for your time. Always great to see you. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>